Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is my good friend Tyler Stallman, at Stallman on Twitter. Tyler, hey Dave. thanks for coming on, man. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm glad too. We haven't chatted for a while, so uh, I'm sure there's a lot to be caught up on. Oh, what's yeah. happened? You've been my, my go-to um, podcast man recently because I've been really scratching my head on what to do with this show and you're kind of one of the few people that i can talk to about it who has experience in the podcast world you've remained consistent you've been doing it for a while how long have you been doing your your podcast so it kind of depends how you measure it because i um like i basically renamed a show i was doing before i had a show called cameras or whatever and uh, i eventually just wanted to do something more broad and turned it to the stallman podcast where i talk about you know, whatever it is I want. Sometimes it's movies, sometimes it's photography uh, or video. But the 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 whole thing has been going for eight years now um, between the two of them. So, Amazing. and yeah, and a bunch of stuff is continuous through it. It's like similar guests come back and stuff. So um, yeah, it's been a while. Stallman Podcast has been about half of that and, and the two together is eight years. So, um, but I, but I also, I did have a podcast in like, I, I, now I'm tr- having a hard time remembering how years work, uh, but like probably like 2010 or so, like right at the beginning, I ran a podcast for about a year that just doesn't exist on the internet anymore because I stopped paying for my hosting service. So unfortunately that is just lost to time. Um, but I, I, I just have to swear that I was doing it a long time ago. I must acknowledge the fact that we both have been able to run this thing live, like real pros. I had my nice little audio intro you have your wide and tight shot <laughs> talk about that what what do you got going on you got two cameras shot over there yeah so it's a, a little bit of a mess actually i was just looking at the wrong lens for it so uh right now i've got a 12 millimeter on my c70 wow. and i've got like a i don't know something zoomed in i forget what it's set at on the r5 so i can cut back and forth and unfortunately the two don't look exactly the same because you can't output the exact same settings through hdmi unfortunately um you know, so even though odd. it's the same brand, similar sensors, you still do end up with different looking colors. I know. Yeah. We were just talking about that. Like here's, you know, you can see the ungraded here in the video, but, um, I'm going to color grade it throughout the thing. So you won't, you won't notice. Um, but so I'm going to switch I'm back and forth a lot to, to make life hard for you. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I brought, okay. I'll stop. I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave it. No, I'll, I'll, I'll only switch when there's, when I have something dramatic to say, I'll punch in. <laughs> yes, Exactly. <laughs> It's so epic, man. Your set looks great. Your your setup is awesome. I love seeing cool, it in thanks. all your videos. Um, constantly using different angles, different perspectives. I notice like, oh, he's in this corner this time, or over here. It's like this is kind of the the dedicated main set, but um, it's nice that you I, can uh, kind of go anywhere in there. Yeah, I, I waste a lot of time setting it up <laughs> from scratch <laughs> all the time. I I mean, it's been on my to do list for the last five years to set up. Like, okay one permanent A-roll and podcast station that just always has a mic and it always has a camera, but I always end up taking it apart and like, oh, I just need, I need this light for this other project. I need the camera for <laughs> yeah. this. And like, I, I, I just can't bring myself to do it. So um, I still set up something fresh every single time for some wow, reason. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. When I was in the home that we were living in, well, we still live there, but the move is kind of, we're moving and it's been a mess. So I had to take the sign down, repaint the walls. So I'm in my dad's office right now, utilizing a corner in his room. So very sexy, but it is what it is. Um, 
I mean, so you know, I honestly audio quality is all that really matters, and you got that covered. So oh, of course, I've got the roadcaster today. So um, I want to start off with talking about the podcast. Um, we already kind of mentioned your history as a podcaster, but um, I've been going through a little bit of a struggle with figuring out what to do with this show because YouTube um, and podcasts don't seem to mix all that well unless you're Joe Rogan or a celebrity. Um, mm-hmm. And then doing the clips and doing all that work is like a ton of work for, for a podcast that is often thrown together. And that's the nature of a podcast is that it's very conversational. So I've noticed as I've been editing these clips and stuff, it's it's a lot of work because I'm often cutting out a lot of chunks to then make a nice, you know, clip. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I could just take out raw clips and not edit it so much. But then it's like, well, at that point, should I just post the whole thing? I know you do um, live streams sometimes. You do you often post your entire interview there. Have yeah. you just kind of removed the idea of growing a podcast YouTube channel and it's really just a place to host your show and you see your show more as a, a audio first kind of thing? Or what are your thoughts on YouTube and podcasting? Because I think there's a lot of ways you can go with it. Having two channels, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's funny that uh, you'd come to me with it because I am constantly changing my mind on it and doing different things. So uh, <laughs> obviously I haven't solved it. You know, I'm if here. you want a real solution, talk to to H3 or somebody that has really figured out how to crack the code. But, uh, you know, I, I'm always, I'm in flux with it as well. And to me, uh, I, I only really started the YouTube channel right at the start of pandemic. It was like, okay, I've been doing this audio for however long. Um, I've got a little extra time in my hands. Why don't I try to make this video? Because I've seen other video podcasts take off. I know some people mostly use YouTube for everything. It's you know, it, it's just their generic content platform. So if they're going to listen to somebody speak, they they want to be able to do it on YouTube. And I, I just felt like I do I want anything I post to be appropriate for the platform. So I don't want to post an audio file that only has a JPEG as a YouTube video. I just, <laughs> you can do that. It's still functional. Yeah. Like that, I, I get why people do that, but I, I didn't want to, you know, I'd like it to kind of be optimized for what it's doing. So especially the, for the way niche, I've treated like, it. I was just going to say, it's especially for a niche. So much of the people, so many of the people you talk to, so many people that I talk to own great streaming setups, great microphones. It'd be one thing if it was like a different niche where people often don't have cinema cameras they can use as their main camera. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a super common problem for bigger shows that they are constantly just going on Zoom and people are using the built-in mic into their MacBook and not wearing headphones. And it sounds terrible, but this is the big show that everybody's really watching. You've got like politicians doing their interview on it um, and it's terrible. The, The good solution to that, by the way, if any enormous shows are listening, like what you should be doing is uh, having people use their iPhone as the microphone and basically like hold it, you know, near here. Like this is, this gives you great audio. If you hold an iPhone about, you know, three or four inches away from your face or talk to it, like you're talking on the phone, it sounds great. That's a, such a high quality microphone. It just needs to get close to you. And I think this is also a lot of the reason that improved MacBook mics are actually a big deal. Like Apple markets them as studio quality 100%. and pretends you're going to record music. That's not, that's not <laughs> the exciting thing about them. The exciting thing is now your zoom calls just sound much better. Um, so 
Yeah, but like you said, the niche thing is very helpful. So most people that come on my show already have gear, and it's something that I'm often taking into consideration. Even just booking guests, like I don't want to trouble anybody that doesn't know how to set this up, and that uh, you know they're going to spend half their day just figuring it out to get it up to the level yeah. of quality I, I try to aim for. But um, you know, I, I I would also take you know if there's guests that are just have amazing things to say and all they can do is talk into their phone, I would absolutely still be happy to have them on. It just it's convenient when a lot of people already have a streaming setup. So I just want to know that I can be validated in this because I've been racking my brain on like, should I just break it off into two channels and do golden hour clips? And then the golden hour channel where you host the main thing I've, you know, it's only been two weeks that I've been experimenting with this like clips only concept, but Mm -hmm. um, I've been getting a lot of comments from people who were relying on the channel as their source to listen to the full hour and a half long show. Also, my average view duration now has gone down dramatically because I was getting long <laughs> right. view duration from a low number of viewers, you know, a couple hundred um, versus potentially thousands with the clips. So it's almost like, okay, should I do the clips separate on a different channel and just go after a completely different audience? And then you know, I've basically trained the audience that I, the small audience that I have on the main channel. They've, they're already just kind of expecting weekly hour long shows, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm overthinking all this, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, of course, of course we're overthinking it. That's, that's part of the fun of it. Um, but I, part of the way I've treated it is, is using the podcast channel as a bit more of a testing ground because, it's, it's not my main focus, which I guess that's part of the question maybe is like, is this whether or not this is going to be your primary focus for the next little while? Um, I know you've mm-hmm. kind of jumped around channels a little bit or like, where will your <laughs> most attention, like what were your most just time editing it, go into? Say it lightly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, just you know, I'm just saying like, it, it, it depends, right? So if the podcast channel is like, you need this to look super professional and be pristine all the time, then you got to be a little more careful about being reliable and posting in the exact same way all the time. Whereas since my podcast channel is secondary, like from my, my mm. other channel, um, I keep, I let it be more experimental. I'm willing to just like, I don't know. I've also just done reaction videos on there or things that are really easy to film and post live. And the expectation of production is non-existent. And so what, what I've found from that is that the, the most success I found with the YouTube podcast episodes is when I really treat them the most like a YouTube video. Like this is basically a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. There just happens to be a conversation because like in the average YouTube viewer doesn't care the form. It doesn't care that you think of this as a podcast because in the end they're yeah. watching a video. They might be watching an hour long video. They might be watching a seven minute video, but like if you can keep them engaged that whole time, then you, you know, you win. So, I mean, so traditionally, like what I think of as, a, a traditional podcast there's you know sort of two formats of like npr investigative journalism style where they sort of do a documentary or what you know we do what we're doing right now which is more conversational and often the topic drifts right like we, we probably won't just talk about podcast formats for this whole show and that's what's harder to to connect to a general youtube audience because they want to they exactly. probably found you by searching for a single term and they want you to stick to that topic for the whole conversation. So it can be an hour and a half. It can be three hours, but they want you to generally talk about one thing unless they follow you because mm. you're a celebrity. So that's the other solution. Well, you can go be a celebrity and then they'll, then they'll listen to you about anything. But uh... <laughs> first, number one, be a celebrity. Number two, <laughs> um, 
as you say all this, I think it's confirming what I was thinking. By the way, I'm I'm loving these switches that you're doing. Thank you for doing this. Uh, it's very fun. I'm trying to keep them tasteful. <laughs> tasteful switches. Everything you were saying about the podcast kind of confirms my thoughts and my theories is that I really should just take each, like right now we're doing the podcast segment of this interview and then we're going to go on to another topic. Like I should pull this whole part out and then just have the Tyler Stallman shares his thoughts on podcasts. And then there you go. There's a 10 minute clip of that one section. I mean, that's what I should be doing. (laughs) I just feel like that's more discoverable and that that works with the YouTube algorithm better, right? Yeah, it, it depends how you want to treat your channel as well. Like, you know, I've looked at the way other people do this. One one group have been following forever, like I, I, since they, um, so it, kind of funny games, which um, they all used to be IGN employees who I followed then. They started the IGN podcasts, which were like some of the first really big video game podcasts 12 years ago, 10 years. I, I'm not really sure. I don't, yeah, okay. Can't remember how time works anymore. And uh, they all left their bigger company to start an independent network. So if you go check out their gaming channels, it's like it's treated not like the modern sort of Twitch style of game commentary. It's much more of a traditional podcast thing where they have shows. And um, I guess I'm just like recommending Scoop it. So just go like check like- out. Uh, you know, like game Scoop's the old stuff, and kind of funny is what they do now independently. So part of gotcha. the thing that they do that I think is interesting is like there's a very low bar to posting a video on the channel for them. It's like, look, we'll post full shows. We'll post short reactions. We'll post long play with me episodes. Like there isn't a, this is the format. It's just like, you know who the hosts are, you know what the level of quality is going to be. And they're going to experiment within the space and post whatever they think people are going to want to watch. And I I think that is kind of appropriate a lot of the time that, um, you know, you don't need to be completely glued to like, well, this is a one hour show. So I post one hour clips or, you know, so you could post full episodes and each segment separately. Like that's, I I don't think that's actually crazy um, to have duplication of of content like that without even starting another channel. Um, Because once people start, that's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. If people are into your, if people are into it, they're going to be able, they're going to figure that out. It's not that hard to, to kind of navigate. You just make sure that you have playlists for the full episodes. So there's some clarity about like how to find um, mm-hmm. which piece of content you're looking for. I just, I feel like the, the standard YouTube educator would advise against it because you're having people who may subscribe for the long form who aren't there for the short form. And you have people subscribing mm-hmm. for the short form who aren't there for the long form. So they skip watching those other videos that they're not there for, which in turn tells YouTube half of your audience doesn't watch your content. You know what I mean? So, sure. Um, I mean, I think of this, that what the approach I just mentioned is optimizing for the user and not for YouTube. You know, I think, yeah. I think it's a good user experience and I don't know how YouTube yeah. really treats it. If you're not like, the thing is, sure. it depends if you just like already have success, which the example that I just gave you, you know, kind of funny games or, or Joe Rogan, or, or, you know, if you look at the big or H3, it's not great to look at what they're doing because they already have the numbers. They don't need to worry about getting that yeah. extra juice from the algorithm. They're, they've got, people are going to show up no matter what. Um, so it's not really about an optimization game for them. Whereas we still need to kind of play that game. And I think that's actually a really common mistake for a lot of people just getting into YouTube period. Like let's say you're doing camera reviews and you're like, well, what should I title my videos and what should the thumbnails be? And so people look at Peter McKinnon because he's had the, most total views per video and they don't realize well he can post completely generic t- 
titles and thumbnails because he already has the audience. He's already done all the legwork yeah. that people trust that whatever he's going to do is going to be interesting. So like, I'm just going to watch it. And, um, we, we, most of us don't have that. Most of us need to like fight a new, that, that battle on every single upload that like we've always got to reestablish the interest. Um, and that's really for anybody that's more in the mid range. So, or, or, or at lower levels, like a nice thing about the way YouTube works right now is that like, if you're anywhere between small to large medium, you have like an equal opportunity with every video. And I found that with my podcast channel, I, I really discovered it when I, I did a reaction video to the C70 that was, mm. you know, just a instant edit. Basically, I just like watched other people's videos, and it was. I put out like a short podcast, like ten minutes of just talking, and um, it got forty thousand views, yeah. which is great. And and I'd done like a real video that week that I'd put all of the usual time and editing into, like it was fully produced, and it got like ten thousand. Like it, you know, the the, <laughs> the the quick and easy one just destroyed it. Um, and, yeah. and, and from a much smaller channel, I mean, at the time I think I had 5,000 subscribers on my podcast channel, whereas my mm. normal channel had 300,000 and it's still that the, the 300,000 subscribers couldn't deliver even a quarter of the views that, uh, you know, a, 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 a tiny subscriber base does. And that's the yeah. like equal opportunity that I think YouTube's been pushing for. And it is, it is part of the good thing of the algorithm. I think content creators are often just only angry that an algorithm exists, but it also really can help you find your place. If you don't have an established audience, it can really help you grow from nothing. Um, if you create something that works, especially the shorts, have you been playing around with shorts at all? Have you made any? I, I have not made off? one yet. No, I, no, I just haven't even made I one. I know from other people's like, it's a good idea, but yeah, I had, I had a video that I made for the podcast that had 20 views. And then 30 minutes later, I just kind of like, looked at my analytics and it went up 2,000 views in 30 minutes. <laughs> but, <That's weird>. So <laughs> the, yeah, right. very strange. So the, the algorithm is basically just blasting it out, doing like a, those 30 people must've watched, watched the whole thing or something We're like, Oh, okay, well we've sent it to mm -hmm. 50 people, 30 people watched it. So now let's blast it out to 2000 and see if it takes off. So it's a very interesting game. And I don't know if you listen to, Marquez's recent interview um, with I forget his name, but the TikTok guy. They, well, he's a YouTuber, but yeah, it's no, a great no, I conversation yet. about TikTok. And they talk about that. Like this is the first time, really, that YouTube I think is a little intimidated because TikTok is really crushing it, and they continue to 100%. steal eyeballs from YouTube. Mm -hmm. I think generally the the viewership of uh, YouTube has gone down because of TikTok. It's kind of nuts. So. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on that form of content? Have you had any, um, thoughts about getting yeah. into that space? I know Anya is probably in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife's been doing it, so I've been doing it with her. So, you know, I've been doing it, but not posting it on my own stuff so much. And the, the format doesn't really connect with me. So this is, you know, yeah. this is me showing my age in a way. And it's not, it's not me saying that it's not great content. It's, it's an interesting format. I see other people doing great stuff in the space. I just don't, I don't have great ideas for it very often. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not often that something pops in my head like that'd be perfect if it was only 15 seconds long. Um, you know, so much more <laughs> sure. often I, I, I enjoy a long conversation. I just feel like there's, there's more there. There's, uh, the, the, you know, even a, a 10 minute YouTube video is never enough to explain anything. There's always something left unsaid. So compressing Absolutely. it into 30 seconds a minute is is challenging for me. So um, if you're looking for growth, I mean, a hundred percent, like it's a, it's a great place to be. 
I, I think that it especially is helpful in like supplementing a, a more substantial channel. Like mm-hmm. from when I've seen people with enormous TikTok growth and huge followings, it's a bit more challenging to build a business on top of only that. Um, yes. Even if the numbers are lower on YouTube, there is, there's a lot more uh, sponsorship opportunities available. I mean, it's just so much easier to monetize mm-hmm. it. And, and part of that is that like uh, you, everything kind of has to be dedicated in a 15 second video. Like it's hard to make something where it's like, you know, the first 10 seconds are content and then like, and these final five seconds are brought to you by Squarespace. Like you can't, you know, um, <laughs> That's a good point. so the whole thing becomes, becomes the, the ad which is fine, mm-hmm. but very different. And so I just kind of prefer and find it easier to work within like, okay, this, the content is pretty long and, you know, only like 10, 20% of it is, is the marketing message. So, you know, there's, there's lots of companies that you can look at and obviously hindsight, it's kind of like, how did they drop the ball? Obviously Microsoft owned the market with Skype and somehow dropped it. And now zoom has taken over. Um, I feel like that could have totally been Skype's game to to win at um and twitter owned vine and completely dropped it and i think twitter had a great opportunity to you know grow vine and invest in it and yet they shut it down and like now tiktok is kind of proving that vine probably could have morphed into something that looked like tiktok and absolutely it's literally taking over the world so uh I, i i've been thinking about that recently uh because of Marquez kind of brought up that point. And I think it's interesting to think like, man, Twitter may have been able to, to do the same thing. They just didn't have the, the inspiration or the, the desire or foresight to, to do that. But um, it is interesting how that all panned out. Um, so anyways, what about, what about your YouTube channel? How's, how's it going? How's, how's the Tyler Stallman channel going? Um, again, Good. we've mentioned Anya, your wife, um, you guys work together. And she is a full-time, you know, do you want to say influencer? I, I know people. We used to call word, it, but... she used to be called a blogger. Now, uh, I don't know, co- content creator. Let's call, let's call it. Uh, I mean, so you guys are, inf- you influencers guys like busy. it's yeah. I mean, influencers like the word it's like the industry word, but mm-hmm. it's also a dirty word. <laughs> like it, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, totally. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that's basically what we do. So, um, yeah, a lot of the time we're doing, um, and then also commercial production as well. So we do the same type of stuff that we do for ourselves for commercial clients. Um, a, a big example last year is there's a, uh, a company called Rocky mountain soap that has, they've had amazing growth over the last couple of years, creating, um, organic soaps and stuff. And so we've been doing all of their campaigns. So that means every couple of months cool. we're shooting something pretty big. And so Anya's doing all of the pre-production on that and casting all the models and dressing all the sets and like, um, ba- basically like everything preparing it. And then t- together we shoot it where, you know, I'm shooting video and she's shooting stills and then I'll do the editing afterwards. And it's, uh, each one is a really big job and it's been cool. So we've sort of been like taking over most of the content for a company that, um, wow. has been, been a lot of work. And then we also do it for a variety of other brands and stuff. And sometimes it's pure social. Sometimes we're creating like their actual campaigns. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's a pretty big mix of the types of production that we do, but, um, yeah, it's, it's been good. So you um, make, the, you, you actually make your money. At, there's a lot of different things going on personally for the Stallman family. <laughs> the, yeah. Anya's making stuff. You're making stuff. You've got your own channel. She's yeah. got her thing. Yeah. You're we, working. For we've always tried to kept our, in, 
we've always tried to keep our income as diverse as possible. Um, there's, you know, if I think of it, there's probably like five or six different ways that we have income coming in that all count for something. You know, they're not all big. Uh, like an example is stock photography. That's, you know, at one point, stock photography was my full-time thing. Like it was doing so incredibly well that I was able to just like, you know, do one shoot a month and then the, they would keep selling and I could just relax. Uh, those days are, are long gone. So now it's like, we, you know, we get a, a check every month from stuff that we've licensed, but um, not enormous. And I think it's harder to get to that point these days because the prices have gone down a lot. The market's been kind of flooded, but it is a component that we keep going on, on the side as well. Um, and then, you know, there's my YouTube and her social and commercial stuff. So, uh, you know, we try to keep it split up as much as possible because there have been points, especially over COVID years where certain segments have dipped because things are changing the economy and we're able to lean more heavily on some other part of our business. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, myself and a lot of our niche kind of see you as Tyler Stallman, the YouTuber that does gear reviews. And it's, it's interesting. There, there's so much more, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what you actually do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, Um, I don't want to oversell it. (laughs) Because also, like, it's funny because I I always have a bit of self consciousness about how little I post of my, um, of like of like creative work, right? Like a lot of other like photography people are posting tons of their, uh, you know, their just like artistic photography all the time. Like, oh, I took this shot and I feel like it's beautiful. And for me, it's mm-hmm. you know what we shoot is really like I'm saying it's commercial. It's like bars of soap in a bathroom lit well. Yeah, <laughs> and you uh-huh. know, so I, like. I, <laughs> I kind of share that to my stories occasionally. I'm like, look at this work we did, but um, it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's not kind of the same. So I was just saying it's good content for you to use as an example of like, so I've been using the R5 professionally, you know, as you talk about it, you got all these great examples of what you've been doing with it, you know? So um, it all kind of works together. Yeah. And I, I even think of it that way as an important part of how I review cameras because some people, you know, Gerald Undone is great at doing extremely technical tests where he will run it through the whole gamut of like, here is where you're going to find the noise resets to better performance at a higher level. And it's hard to discover that on real shoots. Um, So like there are the people that are giving that perspective very well. The perspective that I try to come to it through is that like, you know, I've used this for work. I've used this in a commercial money-making environment and these are the repercussions of using it in your business um so i don't know that's my little bit of a niche within a niche i think so well i for one really enjoy your content i find that we share a very similar brain it seems because often a lot of the kind of random hacks that you discover and the things that you share on your channel are things that i've been thinking as well You've even referenced me in some of your videos where like, yeah, there's an issue that I have with this and Dave did this, you know, (laughs) it is interesting how uh, we seem to be like the podcast. We, I posted my news, like I'm doing clips. And then you were like, I've been thinking the same thing. And then even today I said, why don't they put outtakes anymore on videos? And you said, I was thinking of tweeting that yesterday. So it is funny how we're almost like brothers. I was just watching some comedies and I was like, where are the bloops? Like, obviously they exist. And then I Googled them and there are bloopers, but they didn't put them in the movie. 
I don't know. I'm just like, yeah. Uh, and somebody response somewhere. Somebody mentioned Jackie Chan in that. I'm like, yeah, like that's like the best yes, example. Indeed. Imagine a Jackie Chan movie without the outtakes. You know, it's like Absolutely. it's, it's better than the part. movie. So, yeah. And then especially Pixar. Like, I don't know what movie they stopped doing it, but it was such a it was such a thing that every Pixar movie in the early days right. would have outtakes during the credit sequence, and it was incredible. I remember all those as a kid and It'll come uh, back. they stopped at some point. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I only thought about it because my kids have been watching uh, animations and um, we were watching some animation outtakes today and that's what got me thinking about it. So um, it's fun having kids whenever you get to that point, because you, you start to rediscover all those old movies that you watched as a kid. And I'm getting to shape their childhood the way that I want it to be. It's like, here, watch these movies. These are the movies that I watched, you know, <laughs> No, yeah. let's not watch this uh all this new stuff totally. you gotta watch i mean i remember style. watching a lot of old black and white movies or just things being on tv that were obviously like a few decades before my time like for some reason you know the monkeys tv show was in syndication yeah. when i was young so i watched that quite a bit and the adams family like in black and white was on tv all the time and like oh, i watched a lot of that but that's uh-huh. not my generation <laughs> at all that's like 20 years earlier so <laughs> but i but i like yeah, it. i, grew I, up I like that now yeah, that I still have some uh, nostalgia for something that's older than my generation's nostalgia. Totally. And I have i don't know if you saw my tweets, but I did buy a VHS player and I've been using oh, nice. the actual tapes that my parents gave me. Wow, nice. Like, so we're, we're watching the old Disney tapes. Like, even though I have Disney Plus, the kids love the physical tape and putting it in the player and hitting play. They've now learned how to kind of push play. The youngest hasn't really figured it out, but um, <laughs> that's superior and, analog and experience. The great thing about it too is when the tape's over, it's over. Like there's no up next. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't so, autoplay. Yeah. <laughs> that was the problem with the as a parent. It's like Disney's suggesting, hey, do you want to watch the Spider-Man after this is over? And I'm like, no, no, no. And the kids are like, but I want to watch the, you know, it's awful. So, anyways. Um we do have a main topic today, but before we get to it, I do want to talk about Final Cut. Um, there's a couple of things about Final Cut that annoy me, and I want to see if you relate. Number one is the waveforms. Like, what is the deal with waveform um, on Final Cut? As long as I've been using it for 11 years now, I've been having, like, basically, you have to hit spacebar for the waveform to load. I zoom in to make a cut or whatever, hit space bar, the video starts playing, and then the waveform hasn't loaded in yet. I still have to pause it, and the waveform loads in after that. Like, I'm using the M1 Max. You know, this is a maxed out M1 Max. Uh, I've got blazing fast SSD speed, and still, my waveforms aren't loading in. Have you had this problem? Do you want to see this And let's be specific. Be specific, because at first I was actually confused. You're talking about audio waveforms, because I was imagining visual, like, you know, um, color waveforms, like RGB or Luna. Those are fine. It is that, yeah, Yeah. below where you're cutting, it has to, it seems like it has to regenerate them every single Mm -hmm. time. And yeah, so great example is editing a podcast. It's like you can do a lot of things visually zoomed out all the way, just watching the waveforms, and then you come in, and then you come back out, and now they're gone. 100%. Yeah, I, I run into that all the time, I'm sure. I imagine it's one of those, um, like there's some legacy 
weirdness hiding in there yeah. the same way that uh, you find a lot of that in Adobe is Adobe's usually worse for it than, than Apple software is where they just have some cruft that they haven't repaired forever. Um, yeah. But, but that's not, it's not my biggest complaint. <laughs> I have, I have, I have many complaints too. Um, but that one's more like, it's a little bit annoying and clearly yeah. hardware isn't going to fix it. Like it's a software bug. It's not waiting for faster hardware. Uh-huh. What's your biggest complaint? I'm I'm curious. Oh, What's I I don't, I don't have one queued up. I don't have like, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm so I'm sure there's something bigger than whatever I'm going to think of first. Um, you know, one that comes to mind, I, I, a lot of it is stuff that uh, is present in Resolve, actually. So I'll start with that. Like Premiere, I don't think about it too often, but Resolve is really kind of redefining what I would expect. So, um, you know, thankfully, the color tools have gotten a lot better in Final Cut. Um, they're still not the same place, but, you know, at least you can use it for grading. So I would love for those to continue catching up. A bigger problem, something I would use all the time, though, is basically an archive feature where when I'm done editing a project, let's say I've been shooting in 8K RAW. I've got like some very high quality video here and I'm just, I'm done. It's, it's been delivered. Whole thing is edited in Resolve, which they could, they could do a better job too. But you can say, okay, export this whole timeline, but make sure that each individual clip is saved as its own video file and has handles on either side of it of one second or 12 frames or five seconds, whatever you want. Um, so you can just output ProRes files, uh, maybe ungraded of the, the full quality footage and just put all that in one folder and stick that folder on a slow hard drive that you put under your bed um, and forget about it. With Final Cut, I mean, the, you, I, I just have all these old projects sitting around that are a billion gigabytes. I only need <laughs> a few clips from it, but I, there's no way to say like, look, I only need 10% of these files to hold on to forever. I could throw most of it away. Uh, so I'd really appreciate an archive function like that. That's um, a great feature. I've never, I didn't know that existed. That is wonderful. I love that. The, the way that Resolve treats it isn't primarily as an archive feature. They just, it's, the main thing is being able to export everything on your timeline as individual clips. There's a million ways I use that all the time. Like I'll open Resolve just to do that and export a bunch of stuff and bring it back into Final Cut because it should be yeah. there. It, it makes a lot of sense. I was going to suggest you could technically XML it to Resolve, do that, and then bring it back. <laughs> but it's it, it, kind of it silly. Sucks. There's, there's, there's a, somebody's going to mention it. There is a software in the Mac App Store that um, is supposed to do this. And just, I just found it really actually quite hard to use. Uh, so somebody's okay. tried to, to do it at this point, but I, I struggled with it and haven't been using it. Um, That's a it, great it, feature. I just but... feel like it should be. And, and another reason is as a YouTuber, it's nice to have an archive of B-roll. So it's like, Give yeah. me all of my iPhone B-roll shots because I'm going to talk about the iPhone for 10 seconds, but I don't want to go shoot something new for it. Um, and that's very challenging to build up that archive. So often, really often, I just go to YouTube and I download my old videos and cut Same out here. this <laughs> chunk that I need and insert that. And the quality is terrible. Like, why am I doing this? Yeah. There, there are better ways and I'm not doing it. Well, thankfully, I discovered um, Downy, which is in Setup, and yes. I love that plugin. If you're a Mac user, um, you don't have to subscribe to Setup to get it. It's included, but you could also buy it, I think, for 30 bucks. Um, Downy. Yeah, I did both. I bought it Mac. and now I'm using it through Setup. I love Downy. I use it all the time. It's incredible. You can you can download up to 4K, which is awesome. It even can do a post processing on it um, to make it an MP4. It's just a fantastic way to download and rip <laughs> videos from the internet. Um, I use it constantly. But yeah, that's 
unfortunately, that's what I would do is I would often delete the project and just keep the export on a drive. But then having to go find the drive and find the file was like too many steps. And so I would just rip mm-hmm. it from YouTube and call it a day. So not the best solution. Maybe I could start uploading the raw files to Dropbox, um, just leaving them there, maybe like a, a YouTube archive folder, I guess. But I know a lot of people have solutions. Like people are doing this. Um, the, the, the person that really recommended it was uh, Ali Abdal. Um, he was on mm-hmm. just a video of mine. I think it wasn't even when he was on the uh, podcast, but yeah, he was like, do this, 100% do this. It will save you so much time. I never did it. So. <laughs> I mean, I've sort of tried. I just haven't done a good job. Yeah, just building that B-roll archive. Um, I, think, I think it's really smart. Yeah. Well, hopefully somebody at Apple is listening to our archive suggestion and especially the waveform I, suggestion. I mean, I think it's, I probably should just do it. Like, here's all the problems with Final Cut right now video because I, I know... I was thinking of doing I know one. some Final Cut people watch the channel occasionally. So... Um, yeah. bringing some attention to the things that I care about, maybe would bump them a little bit forward in the lineup. Cause <laughs> I don't know. Well, a I've lot of them don't feel like that big of requests. So honestly, I feel like in this day and age, like a YouTuber making a, com- a complaining video with many people commenting and agreeing often makes things happen. So let's do it. Let's make it happen. That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So C, uh, C70, R5C, um, two cameras that we both, I, w- I haven't played with the R5C, but um, I'm using the C70 right now. Um, I've been using it as my primary tool and camera for the last um, year and a half now, I think. Um, I love it. It's a wonderful tool. I definitely have some complaints. The I'm looking at the monitor right now next to it, and it's kind of hanging off to the side in a not straight angle. It's literally oh, like kind of monitor. flopping down. I can't believe that monitor. I need to, it kills me. So I need to send it in because I do have some friends that have sent it in, and they said that it comes back reinforced. So I think they the first batch that we all got, who were early adopters, got it as this floppy screen. But I've heard that they replace it with a new screen and it's also reinforced. So they've, they've solved it on a hardware standpoint, apparently. So I just need to send I it just, in. I love this camera. I have so much good to say about it, but I do need to take every opportunity to, to shame Canon for, for blowing <laughs> this. I mean, it, it's the, it's the first Canon that's had any sort of just like really widespread physical defect. That's like everybody is experiencing. And, uh, you know, the example I keep thinking of is that when I pick up my Canon R, which is, I got it, I got it on sale too. So it was like less than $2,000, way cheaper camera. And it is still rock solid yeah. after a few years. You know, if you go pick up a, like a Rebel XT or what, like any, the Canons haven't had this problem. They know how to build a yeah. flip out screen. So I don't know why. Um, then the other thing that has been a common problem with it is that on the top, on the, cold shoe mount um the mm-hmm. screws have come loose for me quite a bit and they have set oh, up that cold shoe to be a, a place to put handles like they intentionally mm-hmm. designed it so it's like this you know, look there's a screw here so this is where you're going to add a weight bearing attachment that will take all the way to the camera and yeah. i've continually had those screws just keep con- like gradually loosening so i mean you know really my fault for not, not adding some loctite to it but okay i use um I use it on an easy rig. That is a primary, that is literally like a primary uh, location for me to, to carry it around. Cause I'm using it on an easy yeah. rig often. So 
I didn't even know that was an issue. I personally have not had that issue. So um, oh, well, maybe I'm just bad with my but camera. The, I, the overall, the overall handling of the, like when you pick up the camera, it feels cheap. And my uh, cousin who bought this tool that we've been, that I've been working with, uh, they do courses, Amy and Jordan Demos. Um, I was talking to him about it and how I need to send it in. And he's like, what do you mean? It's a $5,500 camera. He, like he, he's a non cinema guy. He's a photographer. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like technically a low end camera from Canon. And he was like mind blown. He's like a $5,000 camera is considered low end. What are you, what are you talking yeah, about? Entry you know? level. Yeah. It, yeah I mean, there's still something really weird camera. about that. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. If we could talk about C70 for, for a second, it, Please, it, it's such a strange I, I love- camera. Yeah, I mean, because it it really is in a, a place that Canon hasn't um, hasn't done this kind of thing before. Like it it is uh, framed as being somewhat entry level, and I think people that don't own it think of it that way. But in terms of quality and output and what it's creating, I mean, it is it is often the best choice of camera. Like it it can make sense more than a C500 in a lot of cases or a C300. Like it really can be better positioned for so many t- use cases. And once they add raw, which is going to be raw LT, so it'll be a little more compressed than the others uh, can offer, but um, it's going to just be right on par with them in terms of output. Like there will, totally. there are so few compromises in terms of image quality in this camera. And it really is doing something that the much more expensive cameras can't even quite manage and w- with advantages that are very real and a good example is the battery life like i don't care what your budget is um if you're doing anything that is like on the go you know somewhat documentary style other than having a full production where it's on a big dolly all day battery life mm-hmm. does matter and you can just slap on the bp 30s or whatever you know whatever the smaller ones are and two of those yeah. can get me through a whole shoot which is mm-hmm. it is not like that with the bigger cameras and so you're and you're not even gaining a whole lot of image quality or potentially none. Um, so anyway, I mean, yeah, the, the, I think the That's raw fabulous. thing is going to be enormous. But yeah, so I've heard kind of rumors, and I'm just saying this from a, being a forum uh, nerd and just being in, involved in the forums and stuff, and just kind of hearsay. But I've heard that like it really is an upgrade to the C100 in a way. If you really think about it as a C100 Mark III rather than a C70. I don't know why. I think because it's got an R mount you know, on it, it's, I, I think, do you disagree I with think that statement? I think, that, yeah, I think that's underselling it a lot. I think the, the C100 was always, it really was an entry-level camera. You couldn't create mm-hmm. the same work with the C3, C100 as the more professional line. You know, like a C100 couldn't compete with a C300, a C500, or a C200 even. C200 could blow away the C100. Um, and sure. all of a sudden the, the entry level one is at on par. Like you can't tell the difference visually with the final output image. Um, so that, that's well, what's the like same sensor as the 300 yeah, mark yeah, it's the C3 or whatever, mark. right? So three. Yeah. Which is a fabulous I mean, sensor. I just and love this camera. What... I'm so excited about the, like the raw thing I think is going to be huge because <laughs> I was shooting on the C200 before and it was hard for me to give up the raw, like. Um, the, the overall image quality is better on the C70 than C200, but there, there are things you get, right. And you, you I don't think you're going to shoot raw. You're all about, uh, you, you don't even shoot logs. So maybe we can talk about that in a second, <laughs> but, um, I've been shooting the, C2 more often. 
<laughs> oh, okay. What what killed me though is that it would lose saturation in overexposed areas. And the best example was blues. So you have a blown out sky and you want to like bring some of that back in post. The C70 won't recover as much as the C200. And it's and it is the raw format. Like the they're both shooting in C log two. Their sensors are kind of similar. Uh the the noise in the shadows is much better on the C70, but still the highlight color retention is much better. And I think some people get a little bit confused because they're like, well, there's detail retention in those highlights. Like it's holding on to as much or more detail, but the saturation's all sucked out of it. Um, which when you're looking at a sky, a very common use case for needing to recover de- uh, detail, you, you may not need to see detail. You may just need the the blue to be able to pull, be pulled back. So I think once we bring the raw color profile back, that's what's going to be the most exciting about it is that cool. that dynamic range at, at the high end becomes much more useful. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be great. Yeah. Anyway, so wait, well, I, if, if I can critique your uh, taste in, in color profiles for a second, what, what well, makes you generally avoid C-Log2 or, or use it less often? Well, two things. Number one, this last year in particular, I've been working in an industry that does not notice the difference between 4K, 1080, law you know more dynamic range or not um it's been these three and a half hour long courses that are coming from photographers who are often recording these courses using the built-in webcam on their computer so i'm working in an industry currently with this tool that anything (laughs) that has depth of field and good audio is already blowing the industry out of the water Mm -hmm. in terms of production quality so because I'm dealing with 10 hours of content that I'm cutting down to four hours and my machine at the time was an M1 uh, Mac mini. Um, even just like, I just was literally shooting MP4 4k, like not even mm-hmm. 10 bit because I just didn't want to deal with it. And yes, of course the M1 Mac handles it well, but once I start stacking five layers with motion graphics, with JPEGs, with all these different things, it did begin to chug. And yes, I know it's easy to just throw on a LUT, but having to basically go clip by clip with hundreds of clips for four hours was so annoying. So I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna bake it in so that I don't yeah. even have to color grade it when I'm editing. So that's what I did you know is I, I was yeah. baking it in so I don't have to ever touch it. And I would sometimes adjust things, but um, that's why I chose yeah. to shoot YDR. That, that is- that is completely the right answer. Like that's, I mean, that's the reason to do it. Um, and it's because of the computer processing, especially because what I often hear is the argument is like, I don't want to spend the extra time color grading. Um, and it's again, the one, what I really don't understand this with is in terms of C log three, people say all the time, they're like, I rather shoot C log three because it's easier to grade. Like, how are you grading? Like, are you manually dragging the contrast and saturation sliders every time? Which I assume mm-hmm. they are. Because other like what you sh- <laughs> so the thing is if you're sure I sound condescending to somebody out there that is currently shooting C log three, uh-huh. um, but what you should be doing is finding a oh, phone calls coming back. What you should be doing okay. is finding a, a quality transform, which there are many of. I mean, there are LUTs. Mm-hmm. A lot of people sell LUTs and make them available, and then there's also. Uh, tools within different software. So unfortunately, Final Cut doesn't have great internal tools. The LUTs built into it 
are not good enough. I wouldn't use the built-in ones. Um, if you, uh, so if you have trouble finding a good transform LUT, um, Cinematch is another way to do it uh, from the people that make film convert. They can match cameras mm -hmm. between each other and also transform to Rec. 709. Uh, better yet, uh, Resolve has all the super powerful tools like color space transform, things like that, where it's like you just tell it, this is what I shot it in, and it just outputs a great 709 transform and you have all yep. that flexibility to recover all the extra color data and all of the extra light data from it very important you need to do that that those big corrections before in your chain of adjustments it needs to be before your transform if you do it after your transform you're just adjusting a rec 709 image like all the data is gone it's been turned contrasty so if you're trying to fix a big white balance change or you're trying to pull your highlights way back you have to do it before the transform um, but there's a ton of ways pre-built ways that take all the math into account of how to transform these properly and you should not be doing it yourself so as long yeah. as you understand that it is the same to transform c log 3 c log 1 c log 2 you, you, you just do you do the same action and you just select uh, which log profile you mm -hmm. used so and it's and it's not a lot of math or or processing, you know, in terms of GPU and this and that. Like, it, where you're going to see issues it, with your computer it, is the files. It adds are up in what you're doing. Junk. But yeah, yeah, like the problem was I'm dealing with a reaction based course where I'm, you know, I have a primary shot of them talking, and then a screen recording of their computer, and then a screen recording of the iPad, and then on location footage that I shot on the Easy Rig with all these shots and then they'll pause it and then I'll zoom in on it and they'll reference it and they'll draw on the iPad. Like it was very complicated <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was actually a lot of fun for me to problem solve that. And now I feel like I'm a master at making courses cause I've done five of them, five or six of them over the last year. Um, nice. Just now it's a good skill to have. This... Yeah, exactly. I'm working on it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, this is February, the, the month we're recording this. Um, I'm now officially freelance again, so I'm, I'm continuing to work with them uh, as their primary video shooter, but I'm not an employee of theirs anymore. So I'm um, getting back into YouTube and as a YouTuber in the past, I've often shot uh, in camera as well, especially when I was dealing with um, other editors. I liked to just kind of bake it in so that they would just kind of take it and I'd maybe look at it and be like, yeah, it looks okay. You know, and then right. um, yeah. when I was with Kinotika, the strategy was two a week, two videos a week. And often I would start at 10 a.m. We'd shoot till noon and then Connor would have it done by four o'clock. We'd upload and move on to the next video. So like doing an entire That's video in one day, um, just removing the color grading from that really helped because it was just like, it looks good in camera, bake it in, just ship it, call it a day, you know? Um, well, so... In, oh. in my case, I still would choose to use LUTs in that scenario because it probably isn't going to compound the CPU stress enough to be worthwhile it, it, to, to me. And that's sure. that's when it is important. Is like if it starts to slow down your computer, which Final Cut does not deal with LUTs very well, actually. Its LUT implementation is not very smart. Um, so to go back to Final Cut for a second, maybe this is the thing I would change. If you... Uh, apply it to the clip, right? Like you go to the clip and you say info uh, transform yep. light. You like find it in the info panel and, and you switch it to whatever. That's the fastest way for Final Cut to process this. And by the way, this is all coming from, there's like a, a, a white paper from the editors of 
what's the sh- it was Red Notice? Is that what it's called? The you the yeah. Netflix show with that was edited in Final Cut with The Rock and Ryan Reynolds. I didn't know. Um, I didn't they, realize that they, they had a big uh, notion document describing their whole workflow. And they're like, you know, here's, here's how we're cool. going to do everything. And one of the important things was that's the only place to apply LUTs in Final Cut because anywhere else is going to slow it down too much. And um, all the grading needs to be done afterwards. So when they export it, they strip all the LUTs out. Hmm. The way to get good colors out of Final Cut, unfortunately, is not that. Like that's the, that's the fast way. But to make it look good, you need to remove that LUT and apply it as a effect, like a LUT effect, mm-hmm. and put your adjustments custom under effect. it. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and that slows everything down. So it's like, that's what looks better and, and kind of works yeah. better, but it uh, performs worse. Um, sure. So anyway, m- when I was my doing... workflow for the kind of thing you were doing would just be to to do that. I'd still, I'd use the custom sure. LUT because you probably don't have a ton of clips, not a complex edit. Um, yeah. And I no, still yeah, think totally. you'd get a better looking image than uh, the baked in. Thing. Of course. And again, we're talking about four years ago and we were shooting on eight bit cameras as well. So take that into account. Right. Sony's color science was pretty terrible back then as well. So S log three wasn't the best um, when I was using that at the time I was, I started on the one DC. So that camera did have Canon log and um, that actually looked fantastic on the one DC. Um, even though Canonlog yeah. one looks pretty terrible on the C70 and on all the modern cinema cameras, Canonlog one on the original C300, on the C100, and the one DC actually, in my opinion, looks pretty great uh, if you know how to color grade it. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think Canonlog one is nice. It's it's too bad it loses some highlights, but it the colors are very yeah. nice. It's too bad they don't just include it on every camera. Like, why don't they put it on? Like even the 90D or like the lower end cameras, like Sony puts S-Log on the RX100, but Canon won't put Canon-Log on every camera they make. I don't understand. Well, what was weird to me, I was trying to do a three camera setup the other day with the R5, the R, and the C70, and I realized there's no one color profile that is on all of them. The C70 doesn't have C-Log 1. It has C-Log 2 and 3 and not 1. And And all of them are missing some variety yeah. so, there's nothing that's common to all three i was like okay great yeah um when but, i was uh before i was a youtuber you know i was a director and a freelance dp and stuff and i actually did work on a, a documentary feature that my dad uh, my dad's a feature film documentary filmmaker did you know that i don't know if you knew I, that, yeah but. i saw something you posted a while ago you posted a sample of his work yeah and he um anyways i was just like we, this was back in the C300 days, and I was like, just get all C300s. Like, one guy had a Sony, one guy had a you know a DSLR, one guy had a Panasonic, and he was like, well, we could just use all these cameras, shoot 4K. I'm like, nope, it's it's not the same. Just rent all the same camera. That is the best way to go. And my conversation with Oscar Alva from Jeff Wittick too. He, that's why they're just all black magic. He's like, just right. get all the same cameras. That solves all your problems. Yeah. But easier said than done, and- especially when you're a hybrid shooter like yourself. But Totally, yeah. And as much as possible, the same bodies. Like I was just saying that you can run into yeah. unexpected issues between similar bodies. Uh, I'm editing some work mm-hmm. right now that was shot on the C70 and C300 Mark II, and it led to it led to some color mismatch issues. Really? I mean, it's, it's been more challenging oh, than the expected. Oh, the Mark II. It, the Mark II. Yeah, yeah. And it was a Maybe bit of the, 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 the settings. It was the, ga- the, the gamma settings didn't match. They were both C-Log2, okay. but one the C, C300 was using... Um, like a BT 709 is the color, color gamut. 
Yeah. And the the gamma was C log two. So anyway, anybody listening, <laughs> this is so like in the weeds. I don't know how many people understand no, what I'm talking okay. about I'm, right now. But C log yep. two should be shot with cinema <laughs> Canon cinema color gamut gamma. Yeah. I always forget which is which because they're almost the same word. Have you, um, cine anyway, gamma. I, That's the one. This may, this may just be my own thing but have you gone back and looked at any of your like 5d mark ii or 5d mark three footage yeah it's terrible like shit man <laughs> oh okay i i just i feel like the 5d4 in particular that 4k and the 1dc it did have a very filmic like the dynamic range wasn't great but it had a more film-like look whereas now i feel like some of the modern cameras are just so focused on dynamic range it feels a little more digital i'm probably getting think, into very <laughs> objective i'm uh, I, yeah, I think I'm too focused on dynamic range. So it's like when I see the clipping of those older cameras, I'm just like, it looks mm-hmm. like old digital. Um, so, <laughs> okay, I, uh, yeah, but I'm just I'm so film, used to film. Sometimes film is clipped. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's done true. tastefully. But it has Anyways. a yeah, it has a roll off that's a little different. I mean, this that yeah, there's two things, both the clipping, um, but another one I was really noticing the other day, just comparing the R5 and the C70, was I really don't like the the way the blacks just also kind of clip. Like, mm-hmm. excuse me, even if they're not actually clipping, the way that the blacks behave on an R5 is much more like aggressively black. And I mean, this is more an effective C log three, but they just like dip into uneditable much much quicker and there's just this softness to the roll off in the blacks that you can keep you can keep a gentle roll off out of c-log 2 like you can make it feel like it's gently yeah. going toward the shadows and it's just not like that in c-log 3 it, you, you got to kind of shoot some side by sides and all of a sudden you're like oh they are much more different than i realized um and i mean c-log I 2 that, right it's not like that in c-log 2 yeah well well yes it remains right. to be seen how how much better uh, Canon raw light is. And I highly anticipate your initial reaction. I, I would assume to me, that would be a, a classic Tyler Stallman YouTube video um, is your opinion and thoughts on Canon raw light on the C70. I'm excited to see I'm, and hear your thoughts. I'm having dreams about it. <laughs> Everything else about it is wonderful. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the crop sensor situation, but I understand they just, they're repurposing the C300 sensor um, I so, wish they okay. could give me. I think of it. I think of it different than you. Yeah. Do, well, do you shoot RF on it primarily? No, I have the turbo booster with the EF lenses, and I never take that adapter off. It's always on. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. So, so to me, I often forget that it's cropped because I, I, I put like the permanent screws on the adapter, so I actually like can't really same take here. it off. So, yeah. But a lot of people have issues with the flaring with that adapter. There's like a purple kind of flare that happens with it. That is hard to unsee once you see it, but um, that's maybe being a little picky, but it is what it is. I wish they would make some crop RF lenses. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Canon needs to work on there. They they also need like an APS-C good bot, like a pro-ish APS-C body. It's really weird to me that they haven't done this yet um, compared to like, if you want to, if you want to go all in on Sony, you can get these amazing full frame bodies that like do everything you want. Are very competitive with Canon, sometimes better. But you can also pick up a cropped sensor to also have in your bag that's much much smaller, using smaller lenses, mm-hmm. cheaper lenses, 
or just giving you, you know, less depth of field, which sometimes is desirable, or it's, you know, it's offering a variety of options that you don't have with this, with full frame bodies. And you can't have that world with Canon. You're just like, well, you're either all full frame or you're buying sort of the weird consumer stuff, like the M series of of cameras. Yeah. Um, So I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. But lo and behold, here we are with the R5C, which if they were to announce that when the C70 came out simultaneously, I feel like as an industry or as, as a bunch of fans of, of Canon and cinema cameras be a little more torn. And, you know, if, if we were given the option between the C70 or the R5C, say let's just theoretically say they were both offered at the exact same time. What would you have chosen if you were able to pull the trigger on either a C70 or an R5C? Yeah, I mean, if I had, uh, if I had no cameras right now, you know, God forbid my place burns down and I lose everything and I gotta buy it all over again, um, I would 100% go with what I have right now. I would I'd much rather have the C70 because, again, anybody doesn't know, I have the C70 and the R5, and that pair has been amazing for me. If I could only get one camera, I mean, stills are important to me. I need to be able to take good stills. Um, so yeah, yeah, I probably would go for the R5C if I could, could only have one body. But if video is really important to you, like you primarily do video, the the the, the ways in which the C70 is a workhorse, like I would absolutely I would absolutely not trade it for the R5C. That's not to say bad things about it. I I like the R5C, but like the internal indies are so underrated, which is weird. I know. Like, I I don't know how so many people sort of blow past them. Like, oh, it's missing internal indie. I mean. Like, it saves so much time and also to for the way i work which is i don't know maybe not as professional as others it makes the image quality better because the adding a filter onto every lens let's assuming you're using a screw filter obviously we can talk about the adapter filters in a sec but if you're screwing on a filter it is likely dirty (laughs) you know like going in and out of your pocket or in and out of a case or just Mm. interacting with your hand is so likely to have fingerprint or dust and just extra stuff on it because you can't you also can't leave it on all the time um so it needs to be moving around and having a risk of getting damaged or dirty or or whatever um and also just slows down your shooting not to mention of course you can add yeah go Variable, yeah, I think you're about to say it, but variable neutral density filters are the more uh, practical solution because they're so convenient. But they mm. often give a, a a color cast that is, you know, a mess. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's visible. I mean, it's not like there's they they're better than there are more good options than there used to be for sure. I mean, yeah. like Polar Pros is really strong that's kind of my go-to and um yeah i mean like i I don't really worry about the i just kind of use it and i'm like i'll fix it later and it's never that bad but it's not as helpful as internals internals are really easy to to just flip on and off and you just don't think about the color because it handles it so even canon's um adapter where the you know let's say you're shooting on ef glass and you put the EF to RF adapter that has NDs built in, there's also some color shift even with that. Um, so, Sorry, I think I cut you off. You're mid-rant about um, going to a mirrorless body over the C70. Was there another point you were going to make that I cut you off on? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Well, I, NDs, NDs was the first focus. I mean, having built in like real audio inputs is is really significant to me. I mean, uh, I, this lately I've been going back and forth with the R5 a little bit. 
um, it, which, you know, for let's say for a talking head on YouTube, the image quality coming out of an R5 or R5C is actually superior because it is sharper, which I, I think in a yeah. presentational style where it's like, you just, you just want clarity of image. You're not looking for cinematics. Um, mm. the, the, the R, both of the R5s are going to just blow it away. It is better for that. But in terms of simplicity of setup, I don't want an audio interface in between. And usually I'm using XLR mics that need a, a proper mm. preamp. The preamps in the uh, R5 series are both mediocre, or almost terrible. Um, and well, we do you, have you just you always need cam. extra pieces. And anytime yeah. you're exactly. anytime you're counting on more accessories and more other batteries, like that's it is it becomes less and less professionally functional to me it's like mm -hmm. before i go to every single shoot it's like did i charge everything do i have every connection cable in between yeah I, you were just about to say that Tascam has a interface that you can plug into the uh, accessory i don't know what they're calling the hot shoe the hot now shoe, the accessory shoe accessory mount. yeah accessory shoe yeah and um it's that's good. That's good. I'm glad they're doing that, and it's going to be very useful. But it's not as good as just having XLR inputs. Like XLR inputs is way different. It's much better in physical dials to mm -hmm. adjust the audio levels, and uh, I mean, totally. just go on and on. I mean, dedicated buttons for zebras and peaking, and multiple record buttons, and just mm -hmm. like looking at the camera. What else is there on it? A full size HDMI. Um, yes, one hundred percent. I'm I'm sitting here with the camera plugged in over AC because it's got a nice AC port in the back that I can just plug straight in. I don't need a battery dongle, you know, a dummy battery that plugs into the wall um, yeah. or the, the power delivery over USB, which I think you can do now, but it depends on the, you, you got to have the right brick. You got to have the right source to give it actual power. Um, I'm, I have a full size HDMI coming out of this thing and it's just so reliable and great. Um, but then, of course, you have the flip side of obviously the flip screen we've already discussed is awful. Oh. Um, the autofocus is inferior compared to the eye auto tracking of the the mirrorless bodies. And again, just like the flip screen argument, how is it that the same manufacturer that that shares the same engineers and shares the same technology? How is it that one of the most valuable you know, things that makes Canon so great is their amazing dual pixel autofocus technology in the R series cameras. How is it that that's not being carried over automatically to their cinema line? That's kind of a no brainer. It's like one of their defining mm -hmm. features as a company to like include this amazing autofocus system. So I, well, I actually got, strange. I got, I got some pushback on this in my R5C review um, that I was, I, people were sort of saying I was too generous to the C70 in terms of its autofocus. Have you had real problems with the C70 where you're, you're trying to do something and you just can't accomplish it because the autofocus is falling apart? Um, no. Because I haven't I, much. It usually is delivering for me. I I am like you. I have not had many uh, situations where it's been bad, but Maybe we're a strange uh, community of people who sit behind desks and don't move around very much and yeah. are in well-lit yeah, scenarios. The, the, that's the thing. I think the face tracking is excellent. Whenever there is a visible face, the C70 has done great. By the, by the way, if anybody's looking at my video, I'm on manual focus. I don't even know if I'm in focus right now. But it, <laughs> it, it, will, it will track the face for A-roll type stuff just perfectly. Like I never have a problem with it. 
Um, mm-hmm. Better than the C200, by the way, which would often kind of front focus towards my glasses. And the C70 doesn't seem to. Um, but uh, what it, where it, when it falls down is object tracking. It just it clearly does a worse job of like grabbing onto some True. random shape and following it around. That's what the R5 really excels at. And that's the only time it matters to me. So it depends what you're shooting. If you're shooting a lot of like interview style talking head stuff, I, I don't think there's a significant trade-off there. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, I think that's maybe wise because I'm always shooting a subject. I'm shooting, you know, my cousins. And so I'm always focusing on their face or I'm behind a desk doing golden hour and I'm just staying stationary. And the, the face only tracking comes in handy with this scenario where I have a microphone in front of my face that often would be in focus if you're using a traditional system it's only tracking my face which is wonderful and i wish all companies had a feature like that i think it's a wonderful software feature that i don't see why sony couldn't include something like that uh as well it's a a simple i would imagine i really i mean of course we're we're talking about engineering and (laughs) ui and software as if it's like it's easy just you know push a button but um you know I, i think it's interesting that only the cinema line of cameras from Canon have this face only feature. Uh, does the R5C have that feature in the cinema mode? It does. Mode? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the cinema mode really brings over almost everything from the C70, uh, except for C Log 2, and uh, does a great a job of all of it. So, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I'm glad. So now you need to <laughs> set me up to say some nice. Set me up to you say some nice things the- about the R5C because I don't want to make it sound like I'm disappointed or something, but. Can you imagine if you switch it over to the cinema mode and then all of a sudden the, the flip screen, <laughs> screen starts dangling from the side? <laughs> I mean, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, um, yeah, so R5C, no, so, you've had hands-on yeah. with it. Um, obviously, we've set all this up as C70 users and fans. Um, you are a full through-and-through Canon uh, user. You've got the R5. Obviously, set aside your experience with the fact that you know you want the C70 and you want the R5, I, w- I would love to hear your thoughts as you know a C70 user and a, a Canon Cinema user for so long on this new awesome body. I mean, it's kind of like the ultimate hybrid that I think everybody has been wanting to see. I don't think any companies really ever truly made such a a truly hybrid camera. This really is like yeah. the ultimate hybrid that even Sony hasn't really done before it's really interesting yeah let, let's spend a second focusing n- but n- on nothing but the best features of this because th- i mean there's a lot of good to to say about it and uh, i've been wondering for a while why nobody has done why nobody's really done this like this is a hundred percent hybrid it is the it can take the, the as good as any other full frame camera on the market it is completely competitive in terms of photography it is the the top of the line i know other things want to compete but it's, it's as good as it gets and then mm-hmm. the video output is also as good as it gets in certain categories, not in terms of dynamic sure. range, but in terms of sharpness and color performance. It, others are also very good. I'm not saying that it's way better than what Sony's doing. There's things that Panasonic does that are competitive in its own way. But um, yeah. for for what it's aiming to, obviously Alexa's doing better in some ways as well. Of course, uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, it, for, for what it's doing, it, it really is top of the line at both photo and video. And that's amazing and something we just haven't had before where there are very, very few compromises. And I think a, a lot of people see the big compromise is the lack of IBIS. Like that, just speaking of sure. compromises, I think everybody's like, well, they, they ripped it out and it's, you know, it, it's some kind of Canon's usual, like 
they're bringing the hammer down and, and cutting out important features just to artificially differentiate the, the market. And I, I don't think that's the case here at all. Um, they've got two justifications for it. One, I think is a little like bit of retconning, which is that uh, the stabilization on the R5 is less professional for video because it is never able to fully lock off, uh, it's, that, which is not a very common feature. M most cameras with IBIS cannot lock the sensor so that it ever stops vibrating. So even if you turn it off and you have uh, vibrations going on, the sensor is still moving in a way. So the, the, the best example of this, ProAV did a good demo of it, but is when you're mounting your camera to a car, you want the camera to be moving in the with the same vibrations as the car so that relative to the camera, the, the person inside of it is stable. The background is shaking, but that doesn't matter in a car. The background can shake. You want the person to be stable. But if you've got any sort of st stabilization on your sensor, it is always trying to adjust to the horizon, to the outdoors, and it can't do a good job. Um, yeah. And that also can go for gimbals. I mean, a gimbal is expecting the, the sensor to effectively be locked. Uh, they, they Obviously, they can work well together, but um, you're not necessarily getting a, a big advantage of that. And there's also some artifacting that comes from IBIS that is not of the highest professional caliber. Um, so the type sure. of stabilization you get from IBIS is a little more consumer friendly. Like it looks really, really good at first glance. And it's only after taking a much closer look, that you're like, oh, wait, something weird is going on there. So yeah. they, from their perspective, they're targeting the pros. And then the one other justification that I think is a, a bit more of the real reason is to just reduce any potential heat which of, of course seems <laughs> to be reasonable to me. Like they want this to always be cool. So take away stabilization. What if, what if it's like a bunch of engineers sat around the table and like, how the heck do we cool this thing down with the R5? <laughs> like, well, yeah. the IBIS is creating a ton of heat. If we just got rid of that, put a freaking fan on it, then problem solved. Yeah. And you know, they're using what you just said previously as the excuse, but at the end of the day, that may be the real reason is the heat, which sure, I didn't yeah. even consider. Or just to bring the price down a little bit, you know, keep it a hundred dollars cheaper, two hundred. Like there, there are a yeah. variety of reasons, but in the end, um, f you know, it's not something that has really frustrated me on the C70. Some sometimes I, I wish for it absolutely when I'm just walking around. I wish I could turn on. Sure stronger image stabilization other than just the digital but the digital is shockingly good and apparently it's better on the i5c i actually didn't test it but um it, Especially it's, it's very good is lens yeah yeah totally and um again you know a lot of pros are using gimbals they're using easy rigs they're using tripods monopods all that type of stuff but i still wouldn't i don't know i don't know if that's a good enough excuse to get rid of it because Again, there are plenty of other cameras like the A7S III that have really taken over that, and the FX3 that have it, and it, it works mm -hmm. well. But um, I think the reasons for it, you can kind of excuse away, because at the end of the day, it still is a wonderful hybrid camera. And one of the things that you mentioned, of course, the image quality is great on both. That has, you know, there, there have been these hybrid cameras like the 1DC, which was one of my favorite cameras, and I got it used for a great price which is a, a total flagship DSLR that also did video, but it never had focus peaking. It never had waveforms. It didn't have any right. type of pro video features. It just literally threw Canon log, continuous recording, and 4K on it, and that was it. And this is really remarkable from Canon's perspective, the fact that not only do you get great image quality of video and photo, both as a hybrid, but we truly have, when you go to the cinema mode, a true cinema camera with cinema menus mm -hmm. and waveforms and peaking and all the audio kind of 
you know, UI that you would want to see. Then you switch over to photo and you're not using a confusing video menu, kind of navigating, like throwing together a photo camera. It really is yeah. the full Canon photo UI, um, which we've never seen that before. And I think, I, I wonder if Canon may have started something here with this concept that we may see with Sony or, or other things. Sony's really sure, been yeah. trying to figure out their menu system. I think this new batch of cameras with the a7 IV and the a7S III are way better than they've ever been with their menus. Um, Panasonic has done a pretty good job of kind of blending these two, but I love the idea of like, because as a photographer and as a filmmaker, when you're a hybrid shooter, your mind really is focused on what you're actually doing currently. Like I never was able to fully like shoot video. And then at the same time, immediately take pictures. It it, it has sure. been as a hybrid shooter often. Okay. We're going to shoot some video. All right. Cut. All right. Now, you know, let's take some pictures. And my brain is literally going from A to B. It's hard to do both at the same time. So might as well give it two separate UIs. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's really cool. This really is the actual hybrid tool that everybody has been kind of dying to have. Um, Cause yeah. in theory you could just have this one camera and make a living doing both. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still think the best case for, for the kind of work we do anyway, so for the commercial work is to have both. I mean, I, I would never sure. prefer to be on a set where it's like, oh, I could get rid of one of my cameras and only use the one. It It's a better workflow to me for sure to have this, even if they were both our five C's, I want, I would rather have, this is the cam- this is the photo one and this is the video one. Um, I find it helpful sure. to have that separation in my workflow, but obviously a lot of people aren't going to buy two big cameras like this or, or like, you know, you only have a budget for one camera. And so th- this really does bring it together very, very well. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's why it's so expensive, right? Is they're probably not making a lot of them. It, it is a niche market. I mean, cameras in general, professional bodies in general are declining in sales because of, mm-hmm. you know, mobile photography in consumers. So the only people who really are using these tools are professionals. So um, I think, you know, people complaining about the fact that it is a hybrid on Twitter and stuff. It's like, Hey, like you can still buy the R5 and the C70 and whatever tools you want. I think this is clearly a niche product for a niche market. It kind of sucks that they kind of had to make it because the R5 got so so much flack for overheating. Um, But you know, at least we have options, you know? Well, so I think what's significant about this is with the R5, overheating has just not been a big issue for me. Like, especially using it as a B camera, at least as a secondary camera, it's like, mm-hmm. that's not usually my issue. Bigger issue is running into record times. So even if I'm using it for live streaming, I've got to kind of work around that. Or like from recording a podcast, or I, I, I hate the 30 minute record limit. That's more common of an issue for me than the overheat uh, problems. But one thing I love about the R5C is it is always in the the best quality mode of the R5. So with the R5, you'd often be switching to, um, you know, the, you have to turn it to like the HQ mode to get the full pixel readout from the 8K sensor where it is properly downsampled as opposed to like binning or whatever it's doing with the additional pixels when you just shoot in the default 4K. So the default 4K yeah. on the Canon R5 is softer, like visibly softer than the HQ mode. Um, with the R5C, it doesn't have any of that softer mode. It is always at maximum quality. You sort of can't make it look 
worse. You can't you can't you can't oh, make it cool. soft, which um, is is possible in the R5. So uh, I, you know that, that's like kind of one of the nice things is because it's video first in in some ways. It's like look, you're just you're always going to get the best of the best the best out of this, and you don't need to worry about memorizing weird settings. So with the R5, I have to remember like if I'm running it for a long time, I need to go in crop mode to get the full sharp image. That's what I'm doing right now. So what I'll do for things mm -hmm. like if I'm doing an interview or talking head, it's like well crop. If I'm using the crop sensor, it won't overheat, and I'll have the perfect sharpness out of, the, out of the sensor. So, I mean, that's great, but it's still a compromise, and R5C, you just don't totally. worry about it. And again, not to bring back the C70, but that's the beauty of the C70. You just you turn it on. It always works. It's got all the ports. It's got all the, the things. Um, you never have to think about it. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, there's no, there is no record limit on the R5C, correct? They've removed yeah, that. Absolutely none. You can shoot in 60 frames per second for hours. Cool. And then I don't know why they didn't put a full size HDMI on it. I feel like that's kind of a no brainer. They should have put that on there, but yeah, it's got the mini, right? Yeah. I mean, it should be there, whatever. Like <laughs> everyone else, everyone else is doing it. Uh, you know, I bet <laughs> if you talk to the engineers, they'll give you their reasons, but I definitely wish it was there. Yeah, Sony's putting it on everything. Even their the A7 IV has uh, full size now, um, which mm -hmm. is interesting that that's kind of a more photography camera than the A7S, but they went ahead and threw it on there. Um, yeah. Are they doing the USB webcam thing on the R5C as well as like- I'm going to the... bet they are. I didn't, I didn't look at it, but I'm yeah. sure it will be there. Most, I, I'm not Most of us sure, use but... the boxes or whatever, because those- Features are still kind of yeah. buggy. Um, yeah. What else? I mean, it's it's an R five, so you you're probably a little bored of it because it's kind of the same. It's just now yeah, it, more reliable. It was hard for me to get really excited about, even though it's an excellent camera. It's just like, oh yeah, we're in the same place, same same images coming out of this. It's not going to look different, but there are you you know you can use it in some different ways. I, I heard a lot of people kind of griping about specific features of the raw settings. So um, oh, actually, one thing that'd be that's really nice, really quick. You can also shoot in like six point five k cropped raw, which I would use because oh, cool. it's going to be a lot smaller. Um, Mm -hmm. But a lot of people were saying that it's a big issue that if you're shooting in 60 frames per second raw, it's going to not be able to deliver power to the lenses, right? That is a problem. I mean, so oh. you can't use autofocus. You can't even change your aperture. Uh, oh, not wow. great, but because um, the processor is just taking so much juice from the battery. First of all, do you have any idea how much space 60 frames per second raw takes up? Like how many... <laughs> CFast Express cards do you have? Like what level of production is this? Because if you have a budget for shooting multiple scenes at 60p raw, like you, you're, this okay. isn't a problem for you anymore. You can put a manual, you should have a cinema lens on there because you're spending so much money uh, and you, you sure. should have a focus puller using a, a wireless system. Like, uh, and yeah. it can be worked around still. Like you, you can still like preset the aperture in a different mode and then jump into 60 and now you're shooting with it or you can preset the, the focus sure. or change lenses. I mean, it's just like, it's not, it's not a very common use case. The the files are enormous. Like they're so <laughs> big that I do like, I, you know, I don't shoot raw on my R5 at all, like ever, because it's just so impractical to be only getting what I get like 20 minutes out of a 256 card. And that's on the light mm. compression. I mean, come on, what, like how, how much am I really going to do with that? And it can't, well, sorry. And it doesn't properly support C log two. 
you can uh-huh. in resolve extract C log two out of it, but it's not it's not properly supported because the R five is not meant to, to to use it. So I don't I don't like cutting you off, but the, I did have a great conversation with Brandon Washington. I don't know if you're familiar with him, great creator yeah. out in Texas, and um, he's fully in the red system. He got the V Raptor. He's on the Komodo. Very and that's jealous. one of the things that he said. I know it, that's one of the things that he said is like. I just spent the money and just made the switch because red raw is so good. It just works so well in final cut. You get all the raw features. And that's one of the things that we were arguing about is like you go to any other raw system and the files are massive. The uh, support is all over the place. The Canon, especially Canon's raw is just a mess. You have to like bring it in and change it to C log two and this and that. And like, I'm so jealous of red. I guess they just have a ton of patents and, I think yeah, they invented the a lot of this. Yeah. So, you know, when you get into the red world with the Komodo and now, of course, the V Raptor, like Brandon, I don't know if you listened to the interview, but like he basically says, all my issues with the Komodo are completely solved with the V Raptor. It's like the best camera I've ever used, full frame. Yeah. Like it's amazing. So, but we're talking about a $25,000 camera, you know? <laughs> so it's a different sure. which i mean the price I, I i think the, the price of the v raptor is actually pretty amazing like it's come down and the quality yeah. has gone up so that's that's great I, i've never been so close to considering a red like I, I i don't think it'll be many more years before uh, i have at least uh, a red in my arsenal but um the thing about the thing about the raw right okay there's two big things red yeah red has the best raw uh first of all it's got better support than anything else because second place best comes from black magic the b-raw is amazing yeah. like the, the the amount of data they fit in a very compressed file is incredible especially that 12-bit raw coming from the new ursa camera i mean it's like it, it, the files are so small for how much is being saved in there and there's all the flexibility you'd want problem is it is only supported in resolve um yeah so that red wins on that one then when it comes to canon the canon has the worst of them i mean the files are huge and then the support in final cut you have no flexibility with the edit like all of the goodness about raw is sort of gone you're basically just <laughs> yeah. this it'd be the same as working with like a prores 444 how many fours they say four yeah. <laughs> triple quad quad four, four, four. uh four four fi- four four file. Yeah, four fours yeah it'd be like yeah it's like working with a 12-bit file um but it doesn't feel like working through a raw file because you don't have like a white balance setting you don't have iso independence yeah. you don't have an exposure adjustment and those perform very differently. And I did a lot of tests with this on the C200. When you're editing them in Resolve and you have those raw controls, it is nothing, it is not similar to be in Final Cut and just like move the yellow in the color wheels um, to to adjust white balance or to just move the mid-tone slider to adjust exposure. The results from raw adjustments in Resolve are completely different and completely better it's that that is the only appropriate way to be using canon raw um, otherwise you're you're really just gathering a lot of data and not using any of the quality so um it, until there's you know wider spread uh proper raw support for for canon i mean i'm just i don't even think about is it ever gonna happen the c200's been out for years and they still haven't no, uh, implemented yeah. anything I, I i have no idea i i really can't understand it I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe it's like um, Apple putting pressure on Canon to adopt ProRes RAW. Like they, you know, they don't mm-hmm. want to have too much. They want, they want Canon. Oh, I just. Uh-oh, we lost battery. I just killed Speaking one of my batteries. Of- 
Speaking yeah. of battery life on the R5. <laughs> it all just finished the idea. Um, but I at least feel like, yeah, Apple would like Canon to feel the pressure of being a third-class citizen so that, you know, they realize, like, look, until you support ProRes RAW, you're never going to be yeah. as good. I don't know if that's what's going on behind the scenes, but it feels that way. All that being said, it makes more and more sense why Marquez has been on red for so long because it really is the best image quality you can get for a quick turnaround because red yeah. does work well in final cut and that's his primary uh, editing software. There's plenty of other tech reviewers that shoot on red. It's definitely not a practical solution for most people doing YouTube content, but if you want like the highest quality and you want to use the benefits of raw red really is still the only option. It always has been. It's I go all the way back to the original red one and the Red Epic, and the Red Scarlet, and I have a lot of experience with all those older, the MX sensor and stuff like that, and even that long ago, those systems were wonderful, and even in the old Final Cut, I was able to somehow figure it out with the Red 1 original, and uh, it's almost like, because I grew up <laughs> in the filmmaking world as an editor and shooter in the Red ecosystem, I was like, oh cool, now Blackmagic is doing it, and now all these other companies are doing it, I kind of expected it to mm -hmm. be similar, even all these years later, nothing has come close to Red's implementation and and uh, you know ease of use and compression. Their compression is so yeah. efficient. You can shoot 8K yeah, raw on a 128 gig card and get away with it. Yeah, that's the other detail like that is significant. I think easily overrated when people are just looking at considering the specs is that um, you can really compress those Red files. Like if you set it on the most compressed setting it's still looking better than like, a, yeah. you know, the 10 bit files coming out of C7, you still have more flexibility. Um, you don't need to shoot at the highest settings at all. Um, so, you know, uh, you, but whereas on the Canon, even if you show it, shoot at the lowest quality, you're still getting bigger files than higher quality red images. So. Yeah. Well, well, we'll have to see how this C70 raw light performs. I'm sure it'll be, pretty great and uh but it's still you're still dealing with all the issues we're talking about here but um i think i'm with you on the c70 discussion now that i've discussed the r5c and the c70 it does make sense like just buy the c70 as your your video tool and then have whatever other photography tool you want to use whether it's the original r or r5 you know r6 r6 is great too um yeah you know yeah. Just having i've never been this satisfied I've never been this satisfied with the cameras I have ever. Like I've always had this <laughs> like awesome. hoping for something else. Some in some projects I do still want a red. I'm like, uh, oh, you know, I could, I would love for the colors to just be perfect. Uh, not that they'd suddenly be perfect, but like there's 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 always this a uh, you can just jump to colors looking as good as they possibly can with either a red or Alexa. And any other camera band, brand, including Canon, which I love their colors, there's always a little bit of like, well, I got to make it, I got to tweak it into something nice. Um, yeah. And, and red is just instantly there. I mean, the fact that with Canon, for example, that like I had to make LUTs for myself to find a transform that I liked for C-Log2, because all the default LUTs look pretty bad, like what Canon manufactures looks bad, that shouldn't be the case. Whereas with red, you never question it. Like, yeah, use the red transforms. They're amazing. So, yeah. And they, and they constantly up, update them and you can take 
red one footage shot 10 years ago <laughs> apply yeah. the new color transform and now it all of a sudden looks better like it, it's kind of crazy totally. it really is yeah um well tyler thank you so much for coming on the show and nerding out with me um it's just a good excuse to talk about the things that we think about continuously and we'll continue to talk about on twitter with each other i'm sure so thank you for coming on <laughs> well i appreciate it i had a lot to get off my chest so let's go play some wordle have you played today <laughs> not today so don't spoil it i haven't either so let's go do a wordle together sounds good all right all right man talk to you later later